together to Acts chapter 2. I'll bring those lights up. Probably a little easier to see at 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. But So as a, as a part of our 30 days of prayer, we've been on Sunday nights going through the book of Acts and um, seeing what we can learn. Uh, and a lot of it is through, is through observation of the text. Um, Acts is a narrative and uh, so it's, it's Luke is telling us uh, from eyewitness accounts, he's putting together the story of what happened. And then from that, we learn things. And so there are parts of the Bible that are teaching. You know, when Jesus is teaching, when Paul is writing letters to instruct, that tell us this is how this, is how this should be, this is how you should handle this, this is, you know, those kinds of things. This is just describing what happened and from what we observe when we see what, what happened, then, then God teaches us. Like, so based on what you observe here, we can learn this or this or this or this. And so it's kind of a different way. Um, you approach Scripture differently based on the genre of Scripture. And so we've kind of just been going through the book of Acts and, and uh, seeing what God wants to show us based on what's described in chapter 2. Um, the Holy Spirit um, had come, and uh, there was a, a miracle that happened. And so you had, at the, at the time in Jerusalem, you had a, a, it was a, the festival of Pentecost, which would, which would draw uh, the Jewish faithful from all over the region. Uh, could have been as, as many as 70 different nations represented. And uh, probably um, the estimates are that maybe there were 25,000, 30,000 that lived in Jerusalem at the time. And for this festival, it could have been as high as 200,000. And so you had all kinds of people there, all kinds of different cultures and language that all had this one thing in common, which is that they were Jewish. And the miracle was that the, the Spirit came upon this gathering of Christians, where there was 120 of them. And the Spirit filled them, and they began to worship the Lord in a language that was different than the one that they grew up speaking. So instead of it being Aramaic... Uh, it could have been, it was one of the languages of one of the other nations that were there. And this got everyone's attention. And you can see in, in chapter 2, in verse 12, that they were all kind of stunned uh, at, at what was happening. Verse 12 says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? So imagine that you show up in, in Jerusalem for this festival, and there are... Folks who are worshiping in your native language that should not know your native language. It doesn't make sense to you. Uh, you're amazed, you're perplexed, and the question is, like, what does this mean? Um, and so, what, is, what we're seeing here is there's the, this curiosity, this, uh, the crowd was kind of primed. So you've got 120 people, you have thousands surrounding them, probably just looking at them. Being like, what in the world is happening here? Why are all these people speaking all these languages? Uh, what the heck is going on here? And then, of course, verse 13 said, Others mock, mock them, saying they are filled with new wine. Uh, again, because that's what drunk people do. Uh, 
No, it's a ridiculous premise. Okay? So they were, they were so confused, they were grasping at those kinds of straws. You know? Have you ever seen someone who was drunk out of their mind and they were speaking Arabic? No, that's not what's going on unless they speak Arabic. You know? so, um, so that's what's going on. And so what we're going to do for the next few minutes is we're going we're gonna to look at what happens when Peter steps up to the plate and answers their question, what does this mean? What's going on here? And Peter steps up, and he offers this sermon. And uh, So I've studied this this, this week, and a lot of the uh, commentators and Greek scholars and stuff like that, New Testament scholars, believe that in, when Luke is putting together this eyewitness account, that Peter himself was probably his source for writing this. So probably uh, Peter is the one who was like, and then I said this, and then I said this, and then I said this. Um, uh, which is, I don't know, I think that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, so we're going to observe what Peter had to say. And I'm going to pull out, I have six bullet points here. They're not organized. They don't all start with the same letter. But it's just six observations. And, and, and here's, the, here's the foundation for like, where I want to go tonight. Um, we, uh, we know that the church is sent on, on a mission so Jesus says, go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all that I've commanded you. He sends us to make disciples. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, after the, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the Holy Spirit has already come upon them. And now we see verse 8 get real. This is the beginning of, that hap- of the second part of that verse. So they receive power, and now the witness begins. Now, I, I grew up in, in a Southern Baptist church, and uh, so from a very early age, I, I heard this idea about witnessing. You know, that word was, was very prominent. Um, you know, people saying, you need to go witnessing, and here are some, some gospel tracks that you can take and hand to people you know, when you're witnessing to them, and there are different strategies and different techniques, and um, I just remember lots of, like, pamphlets, you know, uh, that were an option, and so kind of grew up, you know, in elementary school, that kind of stuff. I heard a lot about it, but in elementary school, there's really not a, I don't know, you don't really, you know, you don't really think about that. I remember getting to middle school, and getting into the youth group, and there was never, there wasn't like a, like, pressure from the pulpit, um, or like maybe maybe a little youth minister stuff, maybe some youth workers, but there was just there was this sense that I don't think everybody anybody ever told me this explicitly, but it was like if you aren't witnessing to everybody that you sit by in every class you ever go to, then you are the biggest failure that's ever existed. You know, and uh, so I kind of had this like this pressure that I felt. And, um, and then, like, guilt, because, because of the pressure, like, I wouldn't, I don't know, some people, when they're under pressure, they, like, they act on it, and other people retreat. Well, I was a retreat kid, and so I was like, I'm not doing this, whatever. So then I just felt bad, I felt like a failure, and um, they would have Disciple Now weekends are all about getting you, equipping you to share your faith, or Wednesday night youth group things, and all this stuff, and it was really strange, and so I kind of um, remember the, my, the, the best quote, the most freeing quote I ever heard was the one attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, you know, which is, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I was like, yes, that's me, that's my guy, St. Francis, that's me. Um, 
And, uh, and so then I just, that was like, well, that'll just be how I witness it with my life, you know. And, uh, and, and then every now and then I might witness by wearing like a Christian t-shirt to school, you know, like that might be my level of witness. Um, and then you would wear, this is back when you could wear whatever you wanted to school, by the way. And so um, you'd wear your Christian t-shirt to school. People would like make comments and kind of tease you about it. And then you just wouldn't wear one again. And then, then here comes the guilt, you know, and all this stuff. And it was just this really weird cycle that uh, I was probably, uh, probably in my head too much, but really understood the weight of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus and the lostness of the world. Like, I understood all that stuff, but my role uh, was very narrow. And a lot of it was just assumed or, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, through high school, got into college and started reading the Bible. And, uh, yeah, so I read the Bible and was like, wait a second. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Doesn't make a lot of sense. That Jesus was not a mime. You know, I've said that before. Uh, he didn't just like act out the gospel with no words and just hope that people were like, oh, he's trapped in a box. That box is sin. Oh, okay, I get that. You know, like there was no, it just didn't, it just didn't work. Um, Jesus used his words and he used his actions. And he was, there was just this holistic ministry that was there. So even though that quote, uh, it's great. And even though, uh, from what I understand, St. Francis of Assisi is not really the one that said it. But what, whatever, I get the heart behind it, but that cannot be your mantra. Because the Bible is very clear that there are times to act and there are times to speak. That's word and deed that we're called to in regard to faithfulness. And so all, through, through college, just began to, again, still wrestle with that guilt and stuff like that. But it became very, very clear that... Um, that when it comes to being on mission with the church, when it comes to um, making disciples and loving people and uh, representing Jesus in their lives, you have to be in a place where whatever the day brings, you're ready to do that. When the day brings something that's, that's action, then you act. When, it, when the day comes when there's words, you use words. You know That as we live our lives, we're just... Caring for people, whatever things come our way. It's not something that should be filled with pressure. It should definitely not be filled with guilt. But it is one that we should take seriously and be ready for. And be equipped for. And pray for and be ready for. Um, so in our community groups, you know, we kind of restructured things a while back. And part of that is to talk about the most important thing about you which is you and Jesus and how that's going. and um, So that's supposed to be the question. You know, how, what's, what's going on with you and the Lord? How have your disciplines been with Him? What are you praying about with Him? Um, have you been running from Him? Are you running to Him? Like those, that first commandment kind of stuff. Not how's work, you know, and how are the kids and all that kind of stuff. Not that kind of stuff. We're talking about you and Jesus. Like that's the point of the first point of, part of community group. And we get into a word together, and the last part is about who, who is he sending you to? Because the first commandment is to love God with your whole self. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So who, who is your neighbor? Who, who is God sending you to to just love them, to bring the kingdom near to their lives, to bring the compassion and love of Jesus, make it real and tangible in their lives? 
Who is he bringing you to in word and deed? Who is that and how is that going? And how are you praying for them and all that? So we got to a point where we said the, the most important things about us, our love for the Lord and our mission for it to go and to love the world, our groups need to be talking about that and praying about that. And there needs to be accountability and shared life in those kinds of ways. I think that as people who are on mission, we can learn a lot from what we see here in Peter's sermon and his approach and what we see the Holy Spirit doing in him that can directly impact our, uh, our missional life outside of these walls and outside of our group, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, in the home, on the campus, all those kinds of things. Um, so that's kind of the, the foundation. I know that was a long way to get there. But I, just, I think it's important to acknowledge that um, sometimes evangelism and witnessing and all that kind of stuff can be intimidating or weird or there's baggage or whatever, and it should not be that way. It shouldn't. And Jesus can help us recover from some of that like weird wiring that maybe some of us have and encourage us and spur us on in our desire to really walk in the fullness of what he has for us. So six things we'll observe uh, as we go. Uh, all right, so verse 14 But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. All right, let's stop right there. All right. So the first observation is is this. Let's not not, uh, lose sight of who is speaking and the significance of that fact. All right? This This is Peter. So what do we know about Peter? We know that Peter, uh, when we first meet him, he is fishing with his brothers and his dad. Not recreational fishing. This is like family business fishing. So what does that tell us that he was in the family business? That tells us that as a Jewish dude working in the family business, he had been rejected by a rabbi and said, you're not good enough to follow me. So for Jewish boys that grow up in basically Hebrew school, you know, and they're learning the scriptures, when they're bar mitzvah, they go and they find a rabbi that they want to be just like. Say, I want to be just like that dude. They go to, they approach him, they seek him out, they say, Rabbi, I would like to follow you. Which means literally follow you around, learn to talk like you, think like you, act like you, be just like you. As they go to that rabbi and they say, you are worthy of imitation, I want to follow after you. And the rabbi begins to ask him questions and test him to basically see, does this kid have what it takes to be like me? If the rabbi says that you do, then so come follow me. If the rabbi says no, then you go back home and whatever your family does, you do that. So the fact that the first time we see Peter, that he's fishing with the family as in the family business means that he had been rejected and said, you're not good enough. And we meet him in the context of Jesus going to him. So instead of Peter going to the rabbi, the rabbi comes to him, says, hey, you. Uh, this is me, my own interpretation here. But he's like, hey, you, you're good enough to follow after me. Come on. I think you're good enough. I believe in you. You got what it takes. Come on. So Peter was sought after by Jesus and invited in to share his life. Peter becomes one of his disciples, goes all the way through the three years of ministry with him, the ups and downs, becomes part of Jesus' inner circle. I mean, one of the closest people to Jesus. We also know that Peter rejected Jesus. Remember? Like, not rejected him. Denied him. So after Jesus had been arrested and the pressure was there and 
He didn't want to be associated with Jesus. And three times people said, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? He said, no, no, no. Major, major faux pas, right? So dude had messed up bad. Then after the resurrection, Jesus gathers his disciples. It specifically says, make sure Peter is here. He publicly reinstates him. Says, I'm going to build my church on you. And then he was a part of the, the faithful who went back to the upper room and prayed. One of the ones that the Spirit came and filled and empowered. And now these people are being like, what's going on? What's going on? And who is it that stands up to give this phenomenal sermon where the church goes from 120 to 3,000 in one sermon? Who is it that does this? This guy. Uneducated fisherman. Rejected by the rabbis that Jesus sought out, even though he messed up, Jesus reinstated him. Jesus went to, like, ascended to heaven, sent the Spirit to fill him, and put him in front of these people. So let me ask you this Who are we to ever think that we can't do amazing things? Who are we to think that God won't send us into someone's life who needs him, who needs to know the truth about him, who needs love and care and compassion? Who are we to think that we are somehow. Not good enough. We should be encouraged by the fact that Peter is the one who stands up. He had been rejected. He had messed up. He was probably embarrassed. He didn't know what other people thought of him. But he took Jesus' reinstatement. He took Jesus seeking him out. He took the filling of the Holy Spirit. He took all those things seriously and was confident enough to say, I'll, I'll answer your questions. I'll address the group. The thousands. I'll explain to you this phenomenon that's never happened before. I'll tell you what's going on here. We should be encouraged by this as he sends us into people's lives with, with all, kinds of, all kinds of different backgrounds and stories and troubles and questions. And it's so easy to think, what, have I, what do I have to offer this person? How, why in the world would I have, have anything, any way to contribute to the gospel, the kingdom being real in their lives? Who are you to, t- to tell Jesus that what he has approved of is not worthy of approval? Who are you to tell Jesus that the person he has sent is not worthy of being sent? Saying, Jesus, you've sent the wrong person. He said, no, I haven't sent the wrong person. Who are we to push away from that? Instead, let's draw near to that. Let's be encouraged by who we see standing before them. Don't go thinking you have nothing to offer. Don't go thinking you've somehow disqualified yourself from ministry to other people. He sought you. He died for you. He reinstated you to the Father. He ascended to heaven so that you could be filled with the Spirit. And He sent you into people's lives. He knows what He's doing. As insecure as we can all be and as fearful and all that kind of stuff, we, we cannot look at the Lord and say, you don't know what you're doing. Peter could have very easily had a list of excuses, but he didn't. Maybe we can be encouraged by that in our own ministry to people. That's the first thing. That's a long bullet point, so just summarize it however you want. Second thing. In verse 13, 
when it says that they're all amazed and perplexed and said to one another, what does this mean? Um, the Holy Spirit had prepared them for what he was about to say. The Holy Spirit had, had moved and prepared the crowd to hear this sermon. So what does that, what does that tell us? See, Peter is about to give up. At, he's about to get up and he's about to answer their question. But the Spirit had done all the work to get them ready. And what that tells us is that the Spirit of God is always at work in people's lives. He's going before you. He's the one that gets them ready. There isn't a pressure, you know. It's not up to you to save people or convince them or, uh, you know, change their minds or any of that kind of stuff. The Spirit went ahead of Peter. The Spirit will go ahead of you. Now, preparation looks, looks different ways. Here we have this, like, like, jaw-dropping miracle, you know, that got them ready. So, of course, they're primed. They're like, please tell us what this is, you know. That won't usually be the case. So sometimes the preparation comes through your own faithfulness and consistency in someone's life. I'm reminded of the, in thinking about this, the parable of the sower, where Jesus says that the you know, seed is planted in the ground, and what determines the, the success of that seed in bearing fruit is the condition of the soil around it. And in the allegory, he, he connects, he puts meaning to everything, and he says, so the ground is like people's hearts. And so when there's weird stuff going on in people's hearts, uh, it, it hinders the seed of the gospel from merely being able to grow, and so ministry, a lot of times, is about God sending you into someone's life to help get the rocks out and the weeds out and the thorns out. And a lot of that, truthfully, is you just being steadily in someone's life. You love them. You're, you're kind. You listen to what they're saying. And, man, listening is a vanishing skill uh, in our culture, you know. But you, you really listen to what they're saying. And you ask good questions. And you follow up with them. And you're just steady, 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 steady. Trusting that the Spirit is at work. And maybe, maybe God just uses your kindness to someone for weeks and months and maybe even years to just one by one, just get these things out, get these things out. Maybe you're not going in with a gospel tract every day and leaving New Testaments on their computer uh, keyboard, you know, and stuff like that. And maybe, maybe you're not beating them over the head with the, with, with the Jesus stuff constantly. If that's what he has for you, then you just obey him. Maybe he's like, just go be nice. Nobody in this whole office is nice. Nobody in this whole classroom is nice. Nobody in this whole, nobody in the entire hallway of the dorm is nice to this person. You just go be nice to them. And you trust that I'm at work. Because you know what? He might be sending ten different Christians into that life to get rocks out. You just don't know. But we do know this, that the Spirit prepared the crowd, not Peter. The pressure is not on you to get to, like, have to... Uh, fix everything and get them ready, but the Spirit will use you to prepare. So he used this group of 120 believers by taking over, taking over and like making them speak all these languages. But for us, a lot of times, it's just basically, you know, Jesus is described as being full of grace and truth. If, if, that, if that could be your life, that could be my life. I'm going to be full of grace and truth everywhere I go. Um, believing that the Spirit is already at work. 
And then when the time is right for action, you're acting. And when the time is right for words, you're using words. That's the second thing. Um, Let's look at what Peter has to say. Verse 14. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, which is like eight or nine in the morning. All right? um, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, when it says prophesy right there, that word um, is, you know, we tend to think prophecy means like foretell what's coming, but it's, it's really the same word that's used to talk about worship and praise and just declaring the works of God. So his explanation to this crowd of Jewish faithful who had gathered from all over the nations was to go to an Old Testament prophecy that they would all know and basically say the prophecy in Joel, that's what you just watched happen. The thing that you've been waiting for and praying for and anticipating and being like, well, one day what Joel said is going to happen. He's like, this is that day. The Spirit of God has been poured out on his people and they have begun to prophesy or to worship, to declare the mighty acts of God. Keep going. Continuing with Joel, he says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. And the great, the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the first part of the prophecy is describing the day of, of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, the pouring out of God's Spirit on all people, and they begin to worship and praise. Then the second part of the prophecy is pointing to the second coming of the Lord. Now, he doesn't go in and explain everything of the like, and then Jesus is going to come back and you know that kind of stuff. But that's what this prophecy is pointing to. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the return of Jesus. Uh, he is telling them all, there's this, there's this span of time that you've been waiting to be inaugurated. You've been waiting for the Spirit to come. And for the Lord to come, and that period of time has now is now happened. So for us today in this room, okay, let's step out of this this moment for a second. Um, he's saying, grab onto the prophecies that are that point to the coming of the Lord is soon. And we're like, yeah, man, it's like forever ago that this actually happened. Okay, I get that. So soon is maybe a relative term, but we're in that gap of time. We're in that gap of, t- of time. So our celebration of Advent is even connected to these kinds of ideas. Um, so, here's the third, third point. Peter knew his audience, and he met them on common ground. All right? He knew his audience. So, if you're standing in front of thousands of, of, of the Jewish faithful who are, who are there, does he start off with Jesus is the Messiah? No. Because these are all people who, had, they, had, they didn't want anything to do with that. They had already been like, no, that's not him, he's dead. 
So what does he do? He goes right to the Old Testament that they would not only know but embrace and have memorized and deeply believe in. So he knew his audience and he went to a connection point. And he met them where they are. So for us in, in ministry, in my, my daily life with people, uh, you, have to know, you have to know your audience. That sounds like, audience sounds like a weird word, but... So if there's a coworker or a neighbor, if there's, you know, the people that God has sent you to, uh, it's very important that you, you know them. That you pay attention to that and that you meet them uh, on that kind of common ground. That's why I'm, I'm such a proponent of like, the word like relational coming into everything that we have to do. Relational evangelism was not something uh, that I had seen a whole lot until I got older. A lot of it was like, we're going to go knock on some doors and like, wake people up from their naps and like, give them a track. You know, or instead of a tip, we're going to leave a track you know, for a waitress and that kind of stuff. And uh, Those kinds of things. It was like this cold call evangelism. It was, you get on an airplane, God put you on an airplane next to someone who doesn't know Jesus. You better witness to him on that three-hour flight, you know, that kind of stuff. And then you're just feeling terrible about yourself afterwards. And, while I do think that there is a place to knock on doors, there's never a time to not leave a tip and leave a track in its place, just for the record. But there is a time to, to boldly you know, speak to waiters and waitresses, to, to boldly speak to people who are sitting by on planes. There's a time for that, yes. But the, the overwhelming majority of the ministry that you and I are called to is like daily life, the people that you do life with. And you got to you got to know your context. You got to get to know people and where they're from and their backgrounds. And so, if you're talking with someone and you really are like, "Man, God's really sent me and connected me with this person just to share life with them," and uh, it matters if they have a church background or don't have a church background, your approach will be completely different. It matters if they come from a Catholic background or Methodist background or Presbyterian background or Baptist background. That that's very very important. It matters if they are, if they are, uh, it matters their like marital status and if they have kids and how old they are. And uh, it matters what's going on now, what's going on in the past. And you just get to know them. And you're paying attention to their lives and you're learning and you're, you know the context. And then when it's time to act or speak in a different kind of way, you're able to do so in a way that connects with them. It's not manipulative, it's not a sales technique, it's, it's how Jesus worked. It's how the New Testament church worked. It's how Peter is doing right here. So you let the Lord show you that stuff. And here's the, here's the best thing that you can do if you really want to be effective in commandment two, is just pay attention to people's lives. Listen to them. They talk about their kids. Ask about their kids. They tell, yeah, so-and-so, they're really struggling in school. Follow up later on. Be like, so how's the school thing going? Someone has a death in the family. Follow up with them. Better yet, go to the wake. Go to the funeral. Send flowers. Bring them a meal later on. All those kinds of things, if we're not paying attention to people's lives, we're just, we're just kind of missing a whole lot. And then, when we, when we do step out there, we haven't really earned a hearing from them. And so Peter met them where they are and used something that he knew that they would grab onto. Uh, and that opened them up because they were like, oh, I know this prophecy. I've been waiting for this to happen. And you're saying that this is what we just saw? 
That made something come alive. So that's the third thing. Know your audience. Meet them on common ground. Fourth thing. Um, look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus, son of, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through, through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, he just like punched them in the mouth. So he's made this connection with them. He says, so you remember the guy, Jesus? God sent him to you as your Messiah, and you killed him. You rejected the very, the very one you've been asking God to send. And this, is, this point is, I think, a tough one. Peter simply just told him the truth. He told him the truth. That when, when the time comes to speak, you have to love people enough to tell them the truth. Now, uh, he was pretty harsh on them right here. I, I get that. I'm not saying be this harsh. But there does come a time when you... Ha- as you've connected with someone, you've been loving them, you've been faithful, you've been getting to know them, and you really you, you develop this deep heart for them and a love for them, you will love them enough to tell them the truth. About Jesus, about themselves, about eternity, about what, whatever it is. But you have to love them enough to tell them the truth. And the thing that you need, you and I, I keep saying you, the thing that we all need to keep in mind is that... Uh, You'll have the words when you need them. I don't know that Peter, a couple hours before this, was like, you know, bring it on. Anything you, any, you throw me in any situation, I got the words. But there has to be this trust that for those who are filled with the Spirit, when it's time to speak, you'll, you'll know what you need to say. And then when you're asking him and you're like, Lord, I really feel like I need to confront this or have this conversation. I really, I sense that it is time for me to, uh, to sit down and really speak about your goodness and your love and sin. What, what, it could look like a million different things. And you ask him, will you hook me up? Will you help me know what to say? And if you're a planner going into it, you kind of want to have an idea of it. I think God will meet you in that. I don't think he's like, you have little faith. No. I think he meets you in your personality. Me, like I'm, I'm just like I'm going to wing it. Yeah, I'm, that's, that's, I'm fine. And then every now and then something comes up where I'm just like I got to know exactly what I'm going to say. I need a manuscript this mug out. And in those times, I go to him and I have like I'm going to. I need you to tell me exactly what to say and what to stay away from. But Peter told him the truth about who Jesus is. And that is, that is the goal of our relational ministry. It's not to like convert people and like get more Christians, you know, and increase our numbers and expand the base, you know, that kind of stuff. It's, I want, to, I want to earn a hearing in your life so that you can hear the goodness and the beauty of Christ and His deep love for you. 
want to make sure that you know how important you are to him. So for Peter, he kind of went the harsh way. And maybe there's a time, well, there's a time for that. But most of the time, there's a gentleness. But it really comes down to telling them the truth and believing that the Spirit will give you the words. Um, so after he said that you killed him, <laughs> uh, verse 24, he says, But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, so again, what does he do? He goes back to the Old Testament, which they, they knew it, they, especially the Psalms. Oh my gosh, they memorized them, they prayed them. So he goes back, quotes David, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and and of all that we are, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for David did not ascend into the heavens but he himself says the Lord said to to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified he takes, their, he takes their faith, their faith and their trust in this Messiah. And using the prophecies of David and the prophecies of Joel, he basically unpacks and he's like, everything that you believe has been fulfilled in Christ. And even though uh, you killed him, God raised him up and everything is going to be fine. And now he sent his spirit and uh, this is what's real and true. It is strategically and tactfully, like, the most amazing sermon. Like, preacher nerds, pick this thing apart and study it. Like, it is beautiful and phenomenal. But look at the next verse. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So no matter what you say, when it's, when it's time to speak and the Spirit has given you the words... No matter what happens after that, if you have been obedient, you have done your job, well done, good and faithful servant. If they are cut to the heart, that's the Spirit doing the work. If they say no, that's them rejecting this truth. We have to know our role. We have to know our role. And that takes the pressure off. It's almost like the Spirit's like, look, you do your job, let me do my job, everything will be fine. So only the Spirit can cut to the heart. When we know our role, and realize the pressure's off, I just, I just need to be faithful. It's just very simple. Last thing. So it says, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, uh, brothers, what shall we do? 
Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The last thing, he, he calls them to action. They're like, what do we do? It's like, this is what you need to do. In our, in our life with people, when we are sharing with them, and we are, you know, all these kinds of things, don't hesitate to give people a next step of some sort. And sometimes it's their next step. Sometimes it's like, hey, would you, you know, depending on the background, it could be like, like maybe if this is not something that you've prayed about, if you haven't prayed in a long time, I don't know, maybe pray about it tonight. How, how simple is that? Give them a next step. Maybe the next step for them, you know, maybe it's, maybe they need to get into counseling. Maybe they need, maybe they need to come to church. Maybe they need to come to community group with you. Maybe, maybe whatever it is, you offer them a way to take a step forward. Maybe it's for them, but maybe it's for you. Maybe it's you, maybe you're the one that does the next step. And maybe that's what is so meaningful to them. Maybe the next step is like, well, I'll tell you you what I'm going to do. I'm praying for you every day until something changes. Or... Um, I'm going to do a little. I'm going to do a little research and uh, call some friends and just see if you were would want to go to counseling. Who would be the best person you could see? I'll do a little legwork. Hey, I'm going to put you on. Uh, we got a list, prayer list. Church people pray for stuff. Make sure your kid's name is on it. Something. Don't just leave. Don't just leave it hanging. Push people for a next step. So all these things, you might be sitting there being like, whatever, man, we know all this stuff. Well, I hope you do. I hope that we're all walking in this stuff, but Jesus is not joking about the mission of the church, you know? Like, it's not a, it's like, you know what would be really neat <laughs> if this happened? He's, so, he's like, die about it on the cross and then ascend to heaven so the Spirit can come fill people up and send them out. Kind of serious about it. He's deeply, deeply serious about his bride and, and how we live our lives. So, as you love people, maybe think about some of these things. Maybe some of this stuff will be helpful and encouraging to know the Spirit has filled you, the Spirit is sending you, will equip you. And even if it's weird and it's uncomfortable and it's whatever, it's, it's fine. We're just there to be obedient. And I think that maybe, maybe for a lot of us, it's just that we feel so inadequate. We feel like we've disqualified ourselves or we don't have anything to offer. That's, doesn't that just reek of lies? You know? In light of the gospel and the kingdom and who Jesus is, doesn't that just really just sound like this big, fat, obvious lie? Well, if Peter can get up, and we see this. And the same spirit that empowered this in him empowers it in you, then let's go for it. 
And so maybe evangelism is as much of a personal security and identity issue. Maybe it's just as much about that as it is knowing what to say and when and all that kind of stuff. Maybe if we settle more into this the way that Peter has, and that feeling of the Spirit really takes root and becomes empowered, then maybe it's like, oh, whatever, man. I'll do it. I'll do whatever. Send me to whomever. I'll do whatever. It's fine. So I don't know where it lands with you, uh, but I hope that you're encouraged. Um, And I hope that we are effective. Uh, Lots of churches just gather and everything stays inside the building. Um, I don't, you don't want us to be that way. I don't want us to be that way. So, let's pray. Tell you what, let's stand as we pray. How about that? I like standing prayers. God, thank you. I'm grateful that, uh, that Peter is the one that we see here. Because we've all, I mean, gosh, we've all had our issues and probably could name, name reasons why we shouldn't be the one to carry the gospel, you know. And God, I'm thankful that we have a lot more in common with Peter than maybe we realize. Although he was rejected and... Uh, All that, you sought him out just like you sought us out. And maybe he was just like just kind of ordinary and, well, we're kind of ordinary. And you died for him, for his sins, and you died for our sins. And you, you ascended so that he could be filled. You ascended so we could be filled. You've reconciled with him and reinstated him. You've... Done the same with us. Same spirit that filled him fills us. Everything that he needed to be freed of in order to do this, to be effective in carrying out the Great Commission and making Acts 1-8 come to life, everything that needed to happen for him happened. You were everything to him that he needed you to be. And you are everything to us that we need you to be. And so if there is an identity issue that's keeping us at bay and making us insecure and hold back, I pray you'd help us to free from that. And even though we talk about identity a lot here, help us to never feel like we have it all figured out. Because I know for me, if I did have it all figured out, life would look a lot different. So it's obviously still some learning on my end, and perhaps I'm not alone in that. And so as we sing a little bit and just respond along these lines, I pray that I don't know, that you just help us. Help us to be humble and admit our need. That we could be sent out into a world that that you love. Because you know we want to be effective, but the more confident we are in in who you've made us and what you've done, the more effective we'll be uh, in any situation you send us into. So, as we sing, as we sing these very familiar songs, maybe some things will settle into place. <laughs>